0: Uh, We're going to read the Bible together now, and you see it's Genesis chapter 12, which is on page 8. Can I encourage you all to grab a Bible and to read along? This is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible, so let's get into it. So from verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated And the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. his household because of Abram's wife Sarai, so Pharaoh summoned Abram what have you done to me he said why didn't you tell me she was your wife why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife now then here is your wife take her and go then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had
1: Well, if you could keep your uh, Bibles open to that passage, that'd be great. Thanks very much. Uh, my name's Des. I'm one of the student ministers here, and I'd like to uh, really reiterate, Derek's and everyone else who's here, uh, welcome to you tonight to church by the bridge. Um, this is my kind of microphone kind of falling off. I do, in fact, come here. I'm not an escapade from a call centre. Um, uh, why don't we pray uh, before we get into this? As Sue's, I think, quite rightly said, really crucial, critical. Uh, chapter in the Bible. Why don't you pray with me? Dear God and Father, um, we come to you as your people, hungry to hear from you. You say that we can't live on bread alone, and our daily experience confirms that fact. We need you. We need to hear from you. We need the streams of living water that your word is to us. Please feed us tonight and slake our thirst. Help us to listen and help us to obey. Amen. Well, as I said, welcome to Church by the Bridge tonight. Um, If you haven't uh, come here uh, recently or this is maybe your first time or or maybe you just, you know, you haven't got a terribly good memory, um, uh, you won't know that we're coming tonight to the end of a series on the opening chapters of Genesis, uh, chapters 1 to 12. Uh, Chapters which, in many ways, are really foundational for the rest of the Bible. And tonight we really come to a key turning point in this most important book of the Bible, chapter 12. But before we actually get into the the nuts and bolts of chapter 12, I, I think it'd be good for us just to reflect on something maybe a little bit left of field. I want us to reflect on a fact that I think some of us, even as Christians who've been Christians for quite a while, sometimes find a hard job kind of even admitting. That there's something deeply unsettling, even something deeply kind of unsatisfying about the Christian life. There seems to be knitted into the very fabric of being a Christian something unsettling, something unsatisfying, something unfinished. Picture with me three people. One is a, a non-Christian, someone who's, who's not yet a believer in Jesus. They're not a Christian, but they really want to know God. They're convinced that there must be more to life than just what they see around them. And so they go searching. They examine all the evidence And they find that none of that evidence can be disproved. However, they're also not totally convinced by it because all the evidence itself can't prove beyond a a shadow of a doubt that God really exists, that Jesus is really his son. And in the end, they realize that there comes a point where they just have to take God at his word. They just have to, in the end, either trust or ignore him. You can imagine their frustration. I want to know you, God. I want to know who you are. If you really want me to believe in you, why don't you just show up? Why don't you just come and meet me? Or the new Christian who's taken that step, that step of faith, they're absolutely thrilled by their decision. They've realized who they are. They've realized who Jesus is. And they're incredibly excited about their newfound decision, their decision to follow this exciting man, Jesus. And yet, after the first weeks and months, they realize that they still keep tripping up. They find it really hard not to keep being selfish. They find it hard to stop sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They find it hard to, being, to stop being angry with their boss. They find it hard to... you could keep adding to that. They desperately want to stop the sin in their life. They desperately want to stop it, and yet there's still a part of it which seems to cling hold of them. They feel torn, and they want to know, why doesn't God act faster on me? Why am I not fixed sooner? Surely as soon as I put my faith in God, everything will be solved. But there's something unsettling. Or maybe there's the third person, the older Christian, whose the thrill of the initial kind of following excitement has kind of waned down, but it's been replaced by something so much better, by a settled peace and contentment with knowing the God who has saved them. They've been a Christian for years, and yet they look around them, and they still see the suffering and the pain that goes on in the world. And they feel the ache of that. God, I know you love this world. I know you love me. But why don't you come back sooner? Why don't you come back now? Come, Lord Jesus. Stop all this now. Come. Fix it. Now, I don't know if you fall into any of those categories. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. And look, to be perfectly honest, if you don't fall into any of those categories, someone who's kind of looking for Jesus or a new believer or an older believer, well, uh, to be honest, I don't know if I have kind of a, a heck of a lot to say to you tonight. I, I don't know if this passage has much to, you to say to you tonight. Maybe you could, I don't know, sort of catch up on some text messaging or sort of quietly make a sketch of the person sitting next to you. But if you do, if you do feel that tension that I've described in these three people, And they're nameless, but they're not fictional. They are here tonight. I'm one of them. And I hope you are as well. It's deeply unsettling, isn't it? That feeling of, I know there must be something more. I know that God's there. I know that He loves me. And yet, why hasn't He acted more? Why hasn't He acted sooner? And if you do feel like this, I also want to say that you have understood something utterly profound about the way God works in this world. If you feel that tension of existence, that God has come to this world to rescue it, and yet, there is still sin, there is still doubt, there is still suffering. That there is a tension fixed into reality, then I think you've understood something. How to undo that tension, or how to live with it, I think, is the key concern of Genesis chapter 12. I think it's the key concern of the Bible, and I think in many ways, as we look at this pivotal chapter, we will see that in preaching this for, in this chapter, we will in effect be preaching the whole Bible although you'll be relieved to know, not actually preaching the whole Bible, uh, for those people who have work on a Monday, uh, actually only for the next sort of 20 minutes or so. So as I said, we're here at the end of a series on Genesis 1-12. to Why end the series here? Well, it's really because of how the book is structured. Genesis 1-11 covers, as you will have seen if you've been here or if you've read it, a huge historical scope. In 11 chapters, the writer covers from the very beginning of creation, even before creation, with the existence of God, up to about the early sort of part of the second millennium B.C. And it covers the big themes of human life. There's creation. There's creation turning against its creator. There's God showing judgment on that creation. In sending death to people and yet at the same time showing mercy by allowing people to continue and as we see and as we will see preserving a line of people who are committed to him but at Genesis chapter 12 the pace of this book comes to a screeching halt Genesis 12 to 50 far, far from dealing with time scopes of that big uh, of that sort of scale deals with just one family and just four generations of that one family If Genesis kept going at the rate that it had been originally going, I think we would have come to the end of the book by maybe 14. And yet, no, it stops. And I think the fact that it stops and kind of really hones in on these characters really makes you pay attention. It's like a course I did at uni uh, called Legal History. I was really looking forward to it. Uh, The first half of of the course was looking like being this big sort of sweeping vista We we looked at the very beginnings of Roman law and as the weeks went on, we kind of kept going through into the English law and trial by combat and, you know, people, all, all sorts of crazy legal things. I won't go into the details, it'll bore you, didn't me at the time, it was fascinating. And we were going through and I thought, this is fantastic, we're having this big sweep. And then all of a sudden a new lecturer came in and the second half of the course, far from covering the same time frame, dealt with the history of the Tasmanian police force from 1850 to 1910. There was a change of pace. But unlike this change of pace, this is actually interesting. Now we will deal with those chapters, 12 to 50, in a four-part series in about a month's time. But for now, we're just going to concentrate on chapter 12. And as we've already said a number of times, it really is, I think, one of the most important parts of the Bible. But to understand why it's the most important part of the Bible, or one of the most important parts of the Bible, we really need to get back into Genesis. Genesis. You see, so far I've presented the first 11 chapters as pretty much just disaster. You've got creation and that's good at the beginning, but then things gradually go down in a cycle of despair as human beings reject God and experience the consequence of that rejection as the chapters go on. But I want to say that there is hope right from the beginning of the failure. In chapter three, fifteen. I mean, I think this is important enough to actually sort of turn your Bibles over and have a look at. It's going to be a bit of a flipping, kind of a Bible-flipping Bible kind of a night. In chapter 3, verse 15, you see, even as God passes sentence on the human race for, for rejecting him, he also notes hope. Chapter 3, verse 15, and I'll put enmity. He's speaking to the snake here at this point. I put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, literally your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head. Even as sin has first come into the world, there is already foreshadowed this idea that one day sin and death will be crushed under the heel of a descendant of Adam and Eve. A human seed will arise to conquer evil. In other words, God's make a promise that he will save his people. And that promise creates an expectation, doesn't it? As we read on in Genesis, we want to know, well, who's that seed going to be? And a number of really good contenders seem to pop up. In chapter 4, we get, one of Adam and Eve's children, Abel. He's a good guy, and yet, well, we know very soon that he's not the guy who's going to save us because he's murdered by his brother. And yet, he's replaced by Seth, another son. And from Seth's line comes another important family, that of Noah. So is Noah going to be the guy who's going to save his people? Well, it seems, at least in the short term, the flood comes in in chapter 6, and it's only Noah's family that's saved. And yet, as soon as Noah gets off the ark, and you'll see that in chapter 9, you see that he blots his copybook. The first thing he does is get off the boat, plant grapes, make, make wine, get smashed, and get discovered naked, lying, prone by his sons and daughters. It's hardly an auspicious start for the new human race. And yet, he has sons. He has three. Most notably, Shem. Will Shem be the man? Well, verse 10 and 11 go on, but it doesn't end well. In fact, in chapter 11, we see the pinnacle of human sinfulness. The Tower of Babel. As men and women attempt to literally make a name for themselves there in chapter 11 verse 4 as they attempt to build a tower up to heaven to literally lay siege to it who will this seed be who will rescue humanity it seems hopeless but god has made a promise and that promise leaves us with an expectation how's it going to be fulfilled Well, we see it there in chapter 12, verse 1, as we finally get to the text here. Let me read to you probably the most important verses of this chapter. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. See, God selects a man. There's nothing in particular we're really told about this man Abram. We're not told if he's particularly wealthy, or if he's particularly good-looking, or if he's particularly good. In fact, we know from the kind of the crazy business that goes on almost immediately after this, with his Sarah being passed off as his sister, so that she can be basically taken into Pharaoh's kind of um, uh, group of wives, that he's probably not such a great guy. But God picks him. Doesn't seem to be anything particular about him that warrants it, but he's picked. And he's given a promise, another promise. And that promise can really be broken up into four main points. You can see it there. God will give Abraham, or Abram at this point, many descendants. You can see it there in verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. Those descendants will possess the promised land. They're to go to the land that God will show them. There in verse 1. God will be their God. He will bless them and they'll be a blessing to other people. And fourthly, well, I've already said it, everyone on earth will be blessed through Abram's descendants. See, here we have envisaged a fight back where the world has rejected God in all of its sinfulness, epitomized in the Tower of Babel. We see now God staging a comeback. He's staging... An invasion of His world. An invasion to reclaim a godly people who will actually live under His rule, in His place. God's people will live in God's place, under God's rule. It's difficult to overstate just how important those three verses are. It really does set the pattern for the rest of the way the Scriptures work. And so we see Abram head off to claim that promise. you see it there in verses 4 to 9. Having heard this promise, so Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated, and the people they'd acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the side of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, and again the word here is exactly the same one used in 3 verse 15, seed, to your seed I will give this land. So he built, so he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. You see, Abram actually knows that he's on the right track, doesn't he? He trusts in God's promise. He goes off to take the land. And when he's there, God confirms to him, yes, your seed will take this land. We know now that the seed promised to Eve will come through this man. And with that, that promise moves us forward, doesn't it? It sets up massive expectations for what will happen next. And throughout Genesis, God keeps repeating that promise to Abraham in ever-increasing detail. So we're told that he will be a great nation, in thirteen sixteen. We're told that his descendants will not just be great; they'll be like the dust of the earth, or in fifteen five, more than the stars in the sky. We're, he's continually reminded that he will be given the land. In fact, in fifteen seven, he's—it's not just the land; it's this land, Canaan, that he's living in. And we know because God keeps reminding him. That he will constantly have God's blessing if he obeys this promise, if he trusts it. Twenty two seventeen, I will surely bless you, and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand in the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And so, by the time we come to the end of Genesis, we're fully expecting this promise to have been kept. The expectations there, God's made his promise and so we expect it. But from my tone of voice, you can probably guess what happens. It's not quite what we'd envisaged. God promises to Abram that he'll have a great nation and a land under God's rule. And yet, well, by the end of Genesis, Abram has about 70 kids. Not really as many as the stars in the sky. And although he's been promised the land, and his descendants have been promised the land, well, the only land that Abram owns in Canaan is his wife's grave. And he doesn't experience God's blessing. By the end of the book, we find Abram's descendants not in Canaan, but in Egypt. And in the very next book, we know that they will, within a matter of two or three chapters, be taken slaves for 420 years. Our expectations are frustrated. And in that frustration, we feel tension. What is God doing? What is God doing with His promise? And that drives us forward. How will God's promise be kept? And if we keep reading, we're kept waiting for a while. Israel has a very bumpy road towards the fulfillment of that promise. If you know your Bible, you'll know that eventually the Israelites did come out of Egypt. They came towards Israel. They came towards Canaan, rather, but they were kept in the desert for 40 years for disobeying him. They eventually make it in in Joshua Judges, and yet even when they come in there, they hardly take the whole place over. Rather, they're one embattled tribe amongst many in the nations. They eventually manage to get themselves a king, a king that God never wanted them to have, King Saul. And he goes mad. Finally, with King David, it looks like we've actually reached the fulfillment of these promises. We have a king who has finally settled Israel in the land. We have a people who are centralized under a godly king. And in 2 Samuel 6, we see that God has finally returned to his land physically in the form of the Ark of the Covenant. It's finally come to rest. God is living with his people. It seems that there really is the fulfillment of Genesis 12, 1-3. God's people living in God's place, under God's rule. And yet, God says something surprising in the very next chapter, 2 Samuel 7. And if you need know only one other chapter in the Old Testament, I think this is it too for understanding the storyline of the Bible. You'd think that David was it. You'd think that that's where God's promises had finally been fulfilled. And yet this is God's promise about where his seed will be, this descendant who will bring peace. 2 Samuel 7, verses 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days, David, are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, your seed, to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Yes, God is going to keep his promise. Yes, there will be a seed from Adam and Eve who will come to rescue the human race. But it won't even be David. And As we see that David's son, Solomon, although starting off well, fell so quickly into sin. As we see the history of Israel going on from there, divided by civil war, divided by exile in Babylon in 586 B.C., And finally, in the 400s BC, with the last prophet Malachi, God falling silent, it seems that God has fallen away from his promise altogether. That this seed promised to Eve, promised to David, promised to Abraham, is never going to show up. And yet he did. And like Abraham, one man, on the face of it, there seemed nothing special about him. He was a Jew. He was a carpenter. He lived in an occupied territory. At about 3 p.m., probably in April, on a spring day in 33 A.D., he was executed as a criminal. And yet, unlike Abraham... There was something spectacular about this man. Just as God had begun his invasion of the world with one man, Abraham, he began his, he concluded it with one man as well Jesus Christ, the seed that was promised. Galatians 3 puts it this way, verse 15. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. You see, the promise that God made to Abraham was that his descendant would come to save the world. And he did. That's what Jesus is about. Jesus came to save this world. Jesus came to save this world from all the problems that Genesis 1 to 11 spell out for us. All the problems we see in our world now today as we look around, as we read our newspapers, as we hear our prayer points. Jesus came, the seed of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham and yet the son of God, to die an agonizing death on a cross. So that you and me and that this world might be reconciled to the God who made it. It's wonderful news. The seed has finally come. The waiting for thousands of years is finally over. The tension is broken. The promise has been kept. And yet we still feel that tension, don't we? Because we're still here. Because Jesus has come. But he has come and gone. And he has gone so that as many people in this world as possible might come to have their faith in him. And he's coming back, but we don't know when. And we are left here. And there are times when it feels like we have been left here without him we feel like a little man a little soldier invading a country on our own alone wondering what's going on wondering when exactly Jesus will come back we feel that tension how are we supposed to cope with it as we wait for Jesus to come back for Jesus' promised to be finally fulfilled, for God's promise to finally be fulfilled, when Jesus finally returns and restores his kingdom, so that all who put their faith in him can live as one nation under God's rule. What should you do if you're that non-Christian person who is looking for God and yet just can't seem to find the evidence? Who just is satisfied that nothing contradicts it, but You just can't have that one plus one equals two proof. And so you're reluctant. You don't want to put your trust in this person because you just don't think it would be honest to do so. You just want to know. Well, I want to say two things to you. There are many things in this world that have to be seen to be believed. But as cheesy as it sounds, there are some things but have to be believed to be seen. If someone gives me a present, all wrapped up, a nice bow on top, I have no idea what's inside the box until I take off the wrapping. And I think in many ways, until you actually open yourself up to God, until you actually admit, well, look, I may well be a sinner and you may well be a saviour, you'll never know. You might be at that point tonight where you feel the tension has just become unbearable between this promise and yet you haven't seen it fulfilled. You haven't seen God face to face yet. Why don't you take the plunge? Or why don't you not even take the plunge fully tonight? Maybe you're not at that spot. Maybe you don't have to tear off all the wrapping. Maybe you just need to sneak a peek like an eight-year-old at Christmas. Maybe you just need to sign up for a course like simply Christianity. Why don't you just talk to someone and say, look, I need answers. Can you give them to me? Trust. Maybe you're that new Christian, knowing that God has saved you and yet struggling against the sin that is there. Well, your instincts that you need to fight against that sin are absolutely spot on, you do. And just because you are saved by faith, saved by trusting in what God has done, does not mean you have a license to do what you want. And yet you must believe, you must trust, you must have faith that God is coming back. God is coming back for you. Things are going to be okay. Jesus hasn't forgotten his promise to you. And Jesus hasn't left you without a deposit to guarantee that he is coming back. The Holy Spirit at work within you who can make you more and more like Him. Yeah, it is frustrating. Any Christian here who doesn't get frustrated with the sin, I wonder if they've really understood it. But God is with you. He is coming back. And He hasn't left you without Him. For that older Christian, who sees the suffering around them, yeah, it's spot on right to say, come Lord Jesus, come actually the last words of the bible come lord jesus come yeah that's right but remember god isn't being slow in returning because he's forgotten about this world rather he's being patient so that as many people as possible can come back into relationship with him he will come back he hasn't forgotten his promise to you to abraham to adam and eve Basically, we just need to trust because God is the person we trust and to trust as Abraham trusted. Let me conclude by reading a great part of scripture from Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father, because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God will keep his promise. He's kept his promises in the past. He's not ashamed to be called your God. And he's prepared a city for us.